the all-time WHA scoring leader with over 500 total points, playing in his fifth All-Star game. From the San Diego Mariners, number seven, Andre Lacroix. Got a too many men on the ice penalty. Mark Carrish shot. Daly had trouble. Rebound. behind the defenseman after that rebound, forcing the puck back to Andy Lacroix, who put it into the, into the open net when Joe Daly was laying on the ice. And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boyd, I see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities, allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell. So let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. Episode 69 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features the return of one of our favorite guests, WHA scoring king Andre Lacroix. Andre has written his memoir called After the Second Snowfall, which details his amazing hockey journey through pro hockey in the 1960s and 70s and his fascinating life after leaving the game. Andre, of course, was an original Philadelphia Flyer in the NHL and a WHA pioneer in 1972. By the mid-70s, he had established himself as one of the premier players in either league. Known as the magician for his superb playmaking and stick-handling skills, Andre also proved to be a skillful negotiator, playing for six WHA franchises without ever having been traded. Post-retirement, Andre has used his celebrity to bolster charitable organizations and eventually created his own foundation for those with special needs. After the Second Snowfall is available now on Amazon.com. The link is in the show notes. In this episode, Andre and I discuss the process of writing this compelling book. At the conclusion of that discussion, I'll replay my original and entertaining 2018 interview with Andre from episode number nine. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Andre Lacroix. Well, we welcome back one of my favorite players of all time and the all-time leading scorer in the World Hockey Association, who, and I'm really excited about it, has written a book, uh, the story of his fascinating life called After the Second Snowfall, My Life on and Off the Ice. It's Andre Lacroix, the magician, and he is they had one of our most popular uh, podcast episodes we ever had a couple years ago. Glad to have him back today. Andre, thanks for being on the show again. My pleasure, Mark. Andre, the first of all, I want to ask you about the title of the book, After the Second Stowfall. What? How did uh, that title come about? 
what happened is I was trying to figure out a good name for the book, you know, and then and I didn't want to come up with a name like for hockey, like the magician. I, I wanted something different. Mm-hmm. And then I started talking to friends of to my son and his wife, and I was telling him, I said, you know, I said, I was thinking is when I grew up outside of Quebec City, every time we had a snowfall, the first one in November, it disappeared. It never stayed. Mm-hmm. And the second snowfall stayed, and I knew then we were ready to play hockey because the winter was the winter was there because we didn't have out we didn't have indoor rinks. And then the other thing also is the fact that the rink that was built at on the school ground where I went to school, the 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 warm room was about forty yards from the rink. So as soon as the second snowstorm came, we built basically a path that we used a fire hose to make ice so we could get to the warm room, put our skates on, and skate to the rink <laughs> and play hockey. And, uh, and we always clean the ice ourselves as well. So that's why I came up with the, the title after the second snowfall. Andre, I know that you're a avid reader of books on a variety of subjects. Yep. Uh, how did that experience of, of doing a lot of reading help you orchestrate your own book? Tremendously, because I read mostly mystery. And what I found out is when I read a book, I become a character in the book. <laughs> right. You know, and I, sometimes I become different characters in the book. And... There's another book that I read that I could that I could figure out the end, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, which is interesting. That means that I was really into the book, trying to figure out what really happened. Because I read a lot of James Patterson book, you know, and uh, I read most. Like I said, I read mostly mystery. I read David Baldacci, John Grisham, and so these are the guys that I read all the time. And I try, I keep switching because they, they're all good writers, but they all read differently. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as much as I try to figure out, you know, what they're trying to do, I cannot. And that means they have to, they have to tell a good story. Well, there are a lot of mysteries in the Andre Lacroix career, too. So many, <laughs> so many twists and turns. And uh, I think the fans will like how this one turns out in the end. I was curious about the process of writing the book, Andre. Is this something that uh, you dictated to somebody or something you wrote in longhand? And did you do it all in one chunk or did you chip away at it over years? That's a good question. I did that over the years, Mark. What I did is uh, I dedicated my book to my mom and dad because... There's no way in the world I would have played hockey if it wasn't for my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. We didn't have anything. And my dad sacrificed so much to take me different places to play hockey. And uh, so, it, but what I did is, because when I retired from hockey and I, I had a lot of time in my hand here, I was working at the nice rink and I had a lot of time in my hands and I would come home and I would start writing stuff about my life. And I didn't want to write a hockey book. I wanted to write a story about my life. How did I, you know, how did I start playing hockey? Being the youngest of 14 kids and being the only one that skated. And then how did I go from there to play youth hockey, then junior, then the pros, 
And I wanted to know, I wanted to write a book so people could read something they never read before in a newspaper. So what I did is I, I talked in the book about all the contracts that I signed. I put the amount of money that I made when I played it. Yeah, I played hockey. Mm-hmm. I, I starting in junior to the pros. And people would be fascinated to see how much money I made playing junior. And my <laughs> after winning the Red Chelsea Trophy two years in a row as the MVP in junior, they'll be it's amazing when they see how much money I made my first year in Quebec City playing for the Quebec Aces. Mm-hmm. So, and the big question, a lot of times people ask me, they say, how much would you make today if you were playing today and had the success you had? I said, probably eight to $10 million. But I don't think I would have the fun that I did when I played. Right. You know, right. and that's the thing. And, and I talk about my involvement in broadcasting. I talk about my involvement in business and all the charity work that I did. So the reason it was interesting for me to sit down and write those things because it's almost like it happened yesterday. I I remember things, maybe because at my age, I remember things more that happened like years and years ago than what happened last week. Mm-hmm. So everything that I wrote, I didn't have to look anywhere to find out. I knew exactly what, I mean, my my brain was coming back to me, and it was refreshing because I had such a good time when I played hockey that it was good for me to remember all the things when I played midget. I was 13 years old when I played midget. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Bernie Jeffrey came to the school after we won the championship and gave us a, a beautiful jacket to wear, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So uh, there are a lot of good memories, and there are a lot of good pictures in the book as well. There's about maybe 15 pictures or so in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, you know, it's, I think it's a very interesting book. And, there's, you know, I think it's something that when people start reading it, I believe they'll want to read what the next chapter is about. Right, because nothing dull about Andre Lacroix's life and career. It's, 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 it's so unique. It was so unique to its time. And people, whether they were around at that point or not you'll be if you, even if you're a younger person you'll be fascinated at because what you do is you capture in addition to your life and your career you also capture hockey at its most dynamic stage which is the 60s and 70s and i think it'll be fascinating for anybody right. of any age that's right exactly it's a good read for even the younger hockey players when they look they read the book Hopefully, it's going to give them ideas as far as, you know, I better get myself prepared because I talk in the book as well about people that have helped me during my career. And I talk about all the coaches I played for, you know, the good and the bad ones. Mm -hmm. And so people will get an an idea of what, you know, what I went through. And hopefully, that's going to help them in the future. You know, we've talked earlier prior to our interview about how fans can purchase the book, but I was curious, just from an author's standpoint and a reader as you are, what was it like when they sent you the first copy of your own book? Well, I got the, when I got the copy of the book, I was, you know, I kept looking outside to see if the mailman was coming in. I was so <laughs> excited, you know, because never happened before. Right. I wanted to see what the book looked like, you know, because we give it to them and then they put it into uh, a, a, a cover and everything else, and uh, and I said, 
you know, I don't want to get too excited because what if I'm disappointed, you know? <laughs> and um, and one day I, I was coming back from my walk and I see a big envelope on my porch with, uh, obviously there was a book in there. And they sent me the book back to review to make sure that everything was okay. And when I look at the cover and I look at the color and everything else, I was really happy about it. I was sure of that, you know? And I said, then I started reading it to make sure that everything was okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, I mean, I was like a little kid, you know, reading candy, really. Well, that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to getting my copy. As I noted, I think I must have been one of the first people to order it, uh, as it just appeared on. I think you are. <laughs> on yeah. Amazon, so I'm excited <laughs> about that. And I guess one question I was going to ask you, and as. We discussed, uh, I discussed prior to our interview, our previous interview, which discusses a lot about your career, um, not in the depth of the book, but, you know, the previous one you did is, is going to be appearing after our discussion here today. But I was curious, uh, when it came, comes to the World Hockey Association, you're obviously synonymous with the league. And I guess I would ask you an obvious question, but one that uh, has been maybe coming to the forefront over the past few, few days in particular, but the... Bond between the players, even though you're competitors on the ice, especially those guys who went to the WHA early in 72 and 73, I think that's one thing that's so unique about the WHA is you're all in it together to make this league survive and make this thing work. You talk a little bit about that uh, camaraderie you had, not only with your own teammates, but with, in some senses, your opponents as well. Well, you know, this is something that you don't have in the hockey today. And the reason we had that, you know, that friendship among all of us is because we wanted to make the league so successful because the NHL was trying to do everything to make the the league look bad. And then we made a lot of sacrifice because we knew that we were going to be blacklisted on the NHL if the league folded. But we made so many friendships with players that we played against each other all the time. And every time you see something on the news about somebody passing away or somebody doing something good that I never played with but played against, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it bring me so, so many good memories of the the good days of the WHA. And I, I think, don't forget too, Mark, I think the WHA has been sold to the NHL because the WHA is the reason the NHL raised their salaries. And also... The WHA is the reason why the expansion came so fast in the NHL. Right. So the WHA opened the doors to a lot of coaches, a lot of GM, a lot of trainers, a lot of players. I remember when I was with the Flyers, there players that, there were a lot of players that were playing in Quebec cases in the American Hockey League. And if it wasn't for the WHA, they would have never played for the Flyers. And they end up winning the cup with the Flyers. Right. Because of the WHA, that opened the doors to so many players. And that's another reason I think that I, as lo- uh, along with a lot of players that started at WHA, were happy with what we did. Well, I can also speak personally for myself because my first job in hockey was with the Whalers, so no WHA. Right. I, never, I never would have had a career. No, really. Um, you know, you would have you would have too many options because right. you were in Boston, you know, and the only option would have been the Brooms, really. Right. You know, so. So, that opened we'll, a lot of doors. Right. I'm always very grateful to the WHA, as you know. But, you know, we talk about some of the players you cross paths with and some of the recent uh, sad news we've received from 
the WHA circles, and we've had three players pass away. They happen to be three players that at one point or another you cross paths with. And the first one I wanted to get your recollections on is a player you played with in Chicago and in Team Canada 74 where he was captain, Pat Stapleton. What are your memories of Whitey Stapleton? Well, you know, besides being just a great guy, the thing with Pat Staple, when I first got to Chicago, he was one of the first players that came to me and welcomed me and said to me, he said, Andre, if you need anything, just let me know. I'll be happy to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, And on the ice, if you watch Pat Stapleton plays, he was not the fastest skater. He was, I think, if it's possible, I think he was shorter than I am. You know? <laughs> but, he had so much skills, Mark. He knew what the player with the puck was going to do before he did it, before the player made the play. He was always in the right place at the right time. He was so smart with the puck. Defensively, he was so good. You know, and, he, and you can ask for a better teammate. He was the best teammate. He was, to me, he was a superstar in a very, very quiet way. Mm-hmm. He didn't look for publicity. He just went out there, wanted to do his job, and do his job so well, to be honest with you. And he, he, he got a lot of ice time. He was killing penalties on defense, playing the power play, playing a regular shift, but you never knew he was getting that much ice time because he never got tired because he knew how to pace himself and he played the game the right way. Another player uh, you played with in Houston. Now, he doesn't have the... Uh... Uh, it wasn't as prominent as as Pat Stapleton, but it was a good, tough defenseman. It was John Hughes. You played with him in 77-78 with the Arrows. What are your rec- recollections of John Hughes? John was so tough but clean. John Hughes was the type of defenseman that you want on your team. doesn't matter what situation is on the ice. You know you could de- you knew you could depend on him. You know, if you wanted to play physical, you could have played physical with anybody if they wanted to. But his main goal was always to prevent the goal, the puck from getting into the net. Mm-hmm. And defensively, he was as good as anybody I played with. But right. also, he's another guy like Pat Stapleton. So quiet. You don't even notice him. Mm-hmm. You know, but... He didn't make too many mistakes, I'll tell you. He was so good that the coach never hesitated to put him on the ice because he knew he was safe with John on the ice. Mm -hmm. Well, it's quite a compliment coming from you. And, of course, another WHA original from the first year, a player you played against in the very first uh, Whalers game against the Philadelphia Blazers. Of course, 50-goal scorer that year, Tom Hawkeye Webster, who you would later become... Uh, teammates with briefly at the end of his WHA career. Uh, what do you reckon? And also, you were teammates with him with uh, Team Canada '74. In one game, he scored a beautiful goal against Straight Jack. But uh, what are your recollections of Hawkeye Webster? Well, Tommy Webster, he, he was like Blaine Stoughton, a natural goal scorer. I mean, he's the type of guy that I think that if I would have played with someone like him all my career, I would have probably won more scoring title. <laughs> to be honest with you, right. because he's the type of guy that knew he, he knew the center had to get the puck for him to score goals because his job was to skate and get to the open, get the puck, and play the net, and he knew how to do that. Most goal scorers, they depend on their center to score goals, and that's what Tommy did. 
Tommy was so good at getting open. And the thing is, he was deceiving. Because when you watch him, you watch him like he said, it's like he's standing around doing nothing. And it's just because he's looking at the game. He's looking to see where the other teams are. And then he opens himself up thinking the right way, thinking my sentiment's going to give me the puck. If I'm open, so I better open up. So at the last second when nobody was looking, he would get in the open and just go and then you give him the puck. And you knew 9 out of 10 the puck was in the net. I mean, he was just a complete, complete natural goal scorer. Well, we appreciate those memories of those players. That's actually very some interesting insights on all three. And that's the type of thing that the fans can expect from your book. It's not only... There's a lot of great, I mean, it, like I said, it's a great hockey, and I've seen bits and pieces of the book over time, but it's a great period piece. You learn a lot about the game. You learn a lot about Andre and his road with a lot of obstacles overcoming them. It also learn a lot about off the ice. A lot of the things that Andre has done, I can personally attest to off the ice and uh, has improved the lives of many, many people using his hockey uh, notoriety to make lives better for the people around him. So it's something I've, again, witnessed quite a bit and certainly appreciate. But this book will have a lot of insights, both professional and personal. And I am looking forward to going to my mailbox and seeing the book in there. And uh, so I would say to the fans, as I said before, you will not be disappointed. I'm almost going to demand that you buy this book because uh, it's a great story from a great guy. And we uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. We know we'll see you more than likely this summer in Hartford, Connecticut for our uh, annual reunion. But um, we appreciate you being on the show again today, Andre, and wish you the best of luck with the book. Mark, thank you very much for having me on. And now let's take a look back at episode number nine from 2018, my original interview with Andre Lacroix. Andre, as he knows, and anybody who knows me knows, one of my favorite uh, players and people in hockey of all time. Had an opportunity to spend some time with him uh, during the Hartford days. And in Hartford, obviously, Andre had his impact uh, in the community as a broadcaster, as a player. But one thing that kind of flies under the radar sometimes is the great success he had as a coach at Trinity College. He also went on to coach at a variety of different levels very successfully. Uh, in California and in Ohio, and we receive a lot of positive feedback about players for from players who played for you during those uh, years as as a coach. Can you talk a little bit about your coaching philosophy? And it must be great, very gratifying for you to uh, get such uh, positive feedback from your former players. Well, I think what helped a lot is that uh, when I retired with the Whalers, uh, I got the opportunity to coach with a uh, great coach at Trinity College, John Dunham. just Not just a great coach, but also a great guy. And uh, I coached with him for about, oh my gosh, six, seven years at least. And that gave me an opportunity to help coach at the uh, college level, which, you know, it, to me, that's the step that the kids get ready to hopefully maybe play pro they can. If not, they're just happy to play college hockey. And we've had a lot of success there. Then I, I also coach a lot of youth hockey program. I coach uh, high school hockey. And uh, I always tell the kids, every level that I coach, I said, I want you to get ready for the next level. I want you to make sure that you work as hard. Don't work for this year. Work for next year. And so 
I've had a lot of success coaching at the youth level and at the high school level, and I think it, I was so happy to be able to give something back, you know, to the community. Andre, switching gears for a moment, recently a former teammate of yours, John McKenzie, passed away. You played with John in the first year of the WHA in 72 with the Philadelphia Blazers, and you played with him in the last year of the WHA with the New England Whalers. What are your memories of Johnny Pye McKenzie? Well, Pye was just one of those guys that you hate him when you played against him and you just love him when you played with him. And he always had a smile on his face. And then if you want a teammate that go to bat for you on the ice, you want Pye McKenzie. And then he was always at the right place at the right time. He always did the little things right. Size was no factor to Pye McKenzie. And Johnny also always had time for the fans, which I was always impressed with that because this is something that it, it, makes, it misses today that we've had in the past. And players like Johnny McKenzie, you know, Gordy Howe, uh, you know, they always had time for the fans. And I think Johnny will always be remembered not just for, for a great hockey player, but also for a great person who always knew where he came from and always have time to sign an autograph for whoever wanted it. Well said, Andre. You mentioned Gordie Howe, and when I think of Gordie Howe and Andre Lacroix, I think of some of the great days of my early career when we would travel around Connecticut playing charity games with the Hartford Whalers alumni. Well, I miss those days, to be honest with you. And the reason I miss it is because we had fun. We raised money for charity. And then, you know, you miss not playing hockey. doesn't matter what level it's at. I'm 73 years old now, and I play every Sunday morning at 7 o'clock. And uh, year-round, I have a group of 20, 25 people. Every Sunday morning, we meet for, for an hour and a half, and we play. And that keeps me in shape. And also, it, it keeps me involved in the game as well a little bit. You know, I, it's funny. Even at, at this age, we play with a group of 40 and over. I still teach, you know. Right. Every once in a while, I, I'll stop to play and tell them, next time you try this, you try that. You know, you, 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 don't, you just don't want to forget that. And I think what happened when we were playing in the alumni games, I think that the team were playing a lot of times against, you know, high school or college coaches. There were a lot of kids watching. And I think that you, you just don't want to embarrass yourself. You just want to go out there and put a good show on for everybody. Andre, looking back at your career, putting up remarkable numbers uh, as a leading scorer in the OHA with Peterborough twice, uh, dominating offensively for the Quebec Aces, the American Hockey League, making a huge impact when you finally get to the NHL, top score with the Philadelphia Flyers for two seasons. Then you're traded. The Flyers have a philosophical shift. They're going with bigger, more physical players. They trade you the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, that is not a great year for you, not a great fit with that team, but it also kind of, in a way, leads you to uh, your journey in the World Hockey Association. Well, you know, I think what happened was I was uh, I was with the Flyers, and then when I got traded to the Blackhawks, like you said, Mark, uh, it didn't turn out too good for me because as soon as I got to Chicago, I got to sit down with Dick Martin and uh, Brian Campbell, which I knew beforehand. And 
they told me, they said, Ali, be careful because the reason they brought you is to play with Bobby and they've tried everything and nothing has worked. And I said, okay, thank you very much, you know. And um, the, what happened is that I had to change my style of hockey to play with Bobby and you cannot do that. You need to play your own game and I couldn't play my own game. And at the, what happened was near the end of the season, this I was on my last year of my contract, and uh, I got received a phone call from an attorney from Philadelphia who was going to buy a franchise in the WHA. And he said to me, he said, Henri, he said, uh, I don't know what you're making, but he said, uh, I would like you to come back to Philadelphia. I've watched you play for the Flowers for three years. I would like you to come back to Philadelphia and join our team. And he said, I don't know what you're making. Please, I'll double your salary and give you a five-year deal. And I said, I'm gone. And then what happened is Chicago never had any interest at that point, I don't believe, to offer me a contract. But when they found out that I I might be going to the WHA, they offered me a contract. And obviously, I didn't take it because I didn't want to go to another year like I did the previous year. And I came back to the Philadelphia with the Blazers. It was a. Um, did you sign with the uh, Blazers prior to Bobby Hull jumping leagues? No, but when I, what happened is Bobby's the one that convinced me to jump league. Basically, Bobby was just a great teammate. I mean, uh, Bobby was like from the old school. He, he was just like Gordie Howe. He signed every autograph. I mean. It got to be the point where we, when we were, when I was with the Blackhawks, every time we were on the road and uh, we had a bus picking us up after the game, the bus had to keep start going because otherwise Bobby wouldn't get on the bus. He just didn't want to say no for an autograph. Right. And I, and Bobby had told me that he was going to sign with uh, Winnipeg, you know, in the WHA. And I said, well, if Bobby Hall jumps league, it's good for anybody. And I, because Bobby was, I tell everybody, I said, when I played with Bobby Hall in Chicago, Bobby Hall was as popular or as big as Michael Jordan was in Chicago. Right. Because he was the man. He was the man. And, and in many ways, off the ice and on the ice. And I said, if the best hockey, one of the best hockey players in the National Hockey League is jumping league, he knows something. So I said, I can't go wrong. If Bobby goes wrong, then we're all in trouble. And right. that's when uh, I think being in Chicago with Bobby, convinced me a lot to switch to jump league. Interesting. So hey, maybe there was a positive in that trade to Chicago in the end. Uh, because a couple yeah. of guys a couple of guys were in your situation. I mentioned uh, Chris Bordlow who jumped to Winnipeg, Brian Campbell who uh, went uh, yeah. with you to Philadelphia. So some real good talent. Skipping back for a second, you see because they were in the same boat I was in Chicago. Because Tommy Ray was doing the same thing. Tommy Ivan and was doing Billy Ray was doing the same thing to them as they were doing to me. They tried to, you know, make try to make us play with Bobby. If it didn't work, then we'd pay the price for it. So that's why I think all of the three of us didn't hesitate to jump late. Well, it was a good thing that you did. I, I now that Philadelphia Blazers team. Obviously, things didn't work out in Philadelphia for the Blazers franchise, but the team. Uh, had a pretty good talent level. Had yourself, Danny Lawson, Pia McKenzie, Ron Plum, Bernie Perrant, of course. 
team got off to a little bit of a slow start on the ice that year, um, then picked it up and ended up having a, uh, a winning season, as I recall. What are your uh, reflections of year one at WHA as a Philadelphia Blazer? Because you took right off, and you really clicked with Danny Lawson. Yes, I think, well, you can't forget the first home game. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> we go on the ice, we're all excited to play our first home game. That never happened because uh, the Zamboni took a bunch of ice up and then uh, they had to cancel the game. And poor Derek Sanderson, you know, was trying to calm the people down. And the organization had made a mistake of giving everywhere came in an orange park with the Blazers logo on it. And, uh, and the people were firing puck at Derek Sanderson on the ice, you know, so... That was my first experience, you know, with the WC in Philadelphia. But playing with Danny Lawson was just a pleasure. And the reason it was a pleasure, because as a sentiment, you want to play with somebody that's got speed, that will stay on the side of the ice. And when you talk to him, you say to him, Danny, you, you stay open, I'll find you, I'll get you the park. And Danny knew exactly that I was the one that should handle the park, and he's the one that could score the goals. And we had, that was just a super combination, Danny Lawson and I. And like you said, we had a pretty good team, to be honest with you. It's just that I, I wish more people in Philadelphia would believe in us at the time. Don't forget, we're playing at Civic Center, which was not a great rink. Uh, at the time, the Spectrum wouldn't give us any dates to play there. So we were in a tough shape, really, to be, to be successful in Philadelphia. And it was still a Flyers town. And I'm not sure that Philadelphia is not New York. I don't think Philadelphia could support too hot, too pro hockey team. No, but but no. you you really took control of your career uh, more so than any player probably ever. Uh, you played on I think six different teams in the WHA. You never got traded. And so when the Philadelphia Blazers season concludes uh, at the end of the year, the franchise decides to move to Vancouver. Of course, with the exchange rate, you've got a, uh, a clause in there that says you don't have to. And then you sign with the in the Golden Blades, as it turns out. But that, too, along with the New Jersey Knights, ends up being kind of a, a rocky franchise to step into. Well, you see, what happened is I when I jumped to the WHA, I, I start to look at myself and I said, wait a minute. I've had some pretty good years in junior with the Peak in Peterborough. I won the MVP two years in a row. I had good year in Quebec City when I was my first year pro when I played uh, before I went to the Flyers. When I went to the Flyers, I was leading the league in scoring in the American Hockey League with six hat tricks in one season. And I was up by 25 points in scoring. I think the Simone Olet beat me when I went to the Flyers. I missed like the last 17 games. I think he missed me. He beat me the last week of the season. And I think you know, I knew I could play in the NHL. I just want somebody to believe in my skills and give me a chance to do my thing and put me with the right people. That's what happened with the Blazers. And then with the, this, the reason I decided to go to New York at the time, I, I kept saying to, me, to myself, I was a free agent. That's one thing that I did. When I signed with the WHA, every team I signed with, I became a free agent. If the team moved, if the team changed ownership, if the team changed coach, I became a free agent. So I was never traded. The reason the league sent Ronnie Ward to Vancouver from New York, obviously because he wanted to save face, which I don't blame them. But I was never traded for Ronnie Ward. Right. And then 
I, you know, then I, I had a good season with the New York team. You know, we end up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which was, you know, another experience by itself. Right. I mean, when you somebody helped him into the rink in New Jersey on the school bus with his equipment on, like the <laughs> youth hockey, kid, you know, and he's carrying his skates and his stick over his shoulder, you know, that's hockey, you know, and uh, so, and there was a different set of ice in that rink in New Jersey, if you remember. I mean, if you break a pass, if you, the pass could just fly right over the guy. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, but most of them, most of us live in the uh, West Orange area because we're playing in New York. So we're going by bus to the game, and after the game, a bus would take us back home. And I said, I knew. I said, I didn't have a clue what was going to happen after that season. Right. You know, and, um, and then, you know, obviously – end up in San Diego, which was a great move, you know, for me to go there. That was the, that was, that was uh, just a tremendous franchise move from really uh, a tough, tough situation in New Jersey to uh, the great climate and great, you know, potential opportunity in San Diego. You team up I mean, right there in that first year, 74, 75, you can pick up 106 assists. Uh, probably yep. it was your most productive season of all time. Now, I often think about that season too. Now you you played for Team Canada, of course. That seventy four in in the in the fall. I was wondering that was that a catalyst in um, getting. I mean, were you ultra prepared for that season physically um, to be able to go to the Team Canada training camp, play at a high level internationally, and then get right into the regular season with the Mariners? Yes, we. Yes, I think you know. I was. I think we all were. I I believe what happened with Team Canada seventy four. I think if we would have concentrated more on playing hockey instead of trying to be physical with the Russian, I think we would have probably have a better show, to be honest with you. I think we thought we could slow them down by, you know, being physical, but they were too good, too good of a hockey team to play that way. You need to beat them. You need to play them at third game, which was, you know, good hockey. And we didn't do that. But then, you know, when I came back from Russia, I remember going back to San Diego to start my season and the coach told me, he said, take a couple of weeks off, you know, before I said, no, I want to get back right back on the ice. Ronnie Ingram was our great coach. Right. I said, no, I want to get back right on the ice because I want to be with my teammates. I want to make sure that we, you know, we'll work on whatever system you want to work on. I wanted to be part of it. Uh, but besides that, I just didn't, be, I didn't want to be away from, from them. I just couldn't wait to get back on the ice. And what I had to be careful with, because I remember I was, my best way to play hockey in those days was about 168, 169. And it's funny, Mark, because if I was 172, I, I could tell the difference before I even got on the scale. Mm-hmm. And I, I really kept myself in, in really good shape because I didn't want people, you know, when, when you play pro for so many years, you have some pride and you want to make sure that the people don't think that the year before was a fluke. And it was so important for me to go to San Diego and have a great year because everybody said, well, that hockey will never go in that climate. There's no way, you know, and personally it was my goal to prove them wrong. And I prepared myself in San Diego the same way as I prepared myself in Philadelphia. I didn't prepare myself any different except that I knew that I could enjoy the sun every day. Right. <laughs> now, Wayne Rivers was a different type of player than Danny Lawson was in Philadelphia, 
but uh, you really clicked with him. And that 74-75 season, he explodes for 54 goals, by far and away a career high for him. Except, except Danny was quicker and faster than, uh, than Wayne, than Mooner. And also, we had a pretty good left winger, too. Rick Sentes was a pretty good left winger, too. Right. You know, and uh, Wayne Rivers was just a just a normal goal scorer. You give the puck, I mean, he, he knew what the net was. I mean, he was just a great goal scorer, great two-way hockey player, good back checker as well. So I was fortunate because I always had good wingers to play with. And there's no way in the world that they would have had the success that I had unless I had the wingers that complement what I was doing on the ice. So I had a lot of communication with the players I played with. And one thing I did is I made sure when we, in the locker room, I dressed beside them because I wanted to make sure we could talk between periods. I, could, I, knew, I believed that we could talk before practice we went on the ice. So the fact that you're sitting by you know, each other during in a locker room, it means a lot because that you can work on plays that, you know, you can talk about things you're going to do and you go on the ice and you do them. So I never took it for granted that, hey, you just go on the ice and play your game and things will happen. I just didn't believe in that. I believe that you need to get ready before you go on the ice. Unfortunately, despite having a solid team on the ice and an increased fan base, the Mariners had persistent financial problems, particularly in 75-76, where the team often played without paychecks. Ultimately, the franchise was spared for a year by none other than McDonald's founder Ray Kroc. Can you think back at the, those times and pretty unsettling times where the franchise seemed to always be on the verge of folding? Well, what happened, Mark, is the year before Clark, Ray Kroc bought the team, uh, the league took over. They made us the players like owners of the team, technically. We were running the team with Ron Ingram, and they knew, they said, listen, whatever gate is coming in, we'll split among you guys, you know, that will get you whatever money, but either you do that or we stop the franchise, so we want to keep it going. And we were going for a good crowd in San Diego as well. But it's a good story after that because, you know, I became a free agent after that, because of my contract. And then when Ray Clark bought the team, I received a phone call from Buzzy Babesi inviting me to San Diego. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. He said, uh, you know, to sign a contract. And I said, uh, okay. And I went to San Diego. And Buzzy was, I, I tried to get a franchise, McDonald's franchise in my contract. And Buzzy said, absolutely not. <laughs> he said, that's, Jackson is not here because Reggie won a franchise. And he said, Ray Clark won't do that. So when I negotiated with Buzzy, Buzzy was a nice man. And he was trying to obviously lower my salary down. And I said, he said, well, my baseball player, when they make that kind of money, at the time, you offered me $150,000 a year. That was in 1974. I said, I'm making that now plus bonuses. I was making about $20,000 in bonuses. And he said, well, when my players, baseball players, make that kind of money, they don't have bonuses. I said, that's why I play hockey. <laughs> and then I said, at one point, he said, I'll make you an offer. And in 1974, he made me an offer of $175,000 a year for six years with a personal guarantee from Mr. Clark. So I called my attorney, because I negotiated my own contract. So I called my attorney in New Jersey. I said, are you sitting down, Richard? 
And I told him, he said, because in those days there was no computer, you know, right. everything was relaxed. And I said, guess what? I said, here's the deal. He said, bring it down right now. I said, I will. And that, and then that's how I ended up, you know. And then it's funny because after that, Rick Clark decided he didn't like hockey a year later. And every team I've been with after that, they always honored my contract. And Rick Clark never had to pay a penny. Oh, interesting. Everything paid. Yeah, yeah. Even the Whalers at the end. After the Mariners' demise, Andre, you signed. I was glad to see that you signed with the Houston Arrows, a team that had just lost the house, but also had a lot of good young hockey players. Terry Ruskowski, Rich Preston, John Tonelli, Scott Campbell, Morris Lukowicz. Talk a little bit about your decision to sign with the Arrows and uh, how that season played out for you. The reason I chose Houston because at the time Gordy, Mark, and Marty had gone to Hartford, and then Bill Deneen was a coach, and I had so much respect for Bill Deneen. Uh Great coach, great human being, and I said I always felt like I, if I had a chance to play for somebody, it would be Bill Deneen. And uh, when the opportunity came up to play for him, and the fact that the house had gone to Hartford. It was a good situation for me to go there because they still had the young talent there. They still had Terry Roskowski, Rich Preston, you know, all those guys. And I said, we could have a very good team. And uh, we had, we did have a good season. And uh, I was really happy that I made that decision uh, because I, I played with the men I wanted to play for. And I played with some great teammates there as well. The... Once again, bad luck strikes uh, in your career. Uh, you're, I had lots of those, by the way, with teams I played for. Yeah, it did. Uh, nothing personal, I guess, because you, uh, you always produced. And again, you had a great year, 77 assists that year with the Houston, 113 points. Um, and then you enter our world in New England uh, in the offseason. The Arrows send all their, or sold all the players to Winnipeg once again. Uh, your ability to uh, kind of foresee these type of things works out for you. You're not forced to go to Winnipeg. You're a free agent again, and you join Bill Deneen again, and you become a New England Whaler in 1978. Talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about that decision. Well, there were, uh, there were a couple of reasons why I went to Hartford. One of the reasons was Bill Deneen, and the other reason was Howard Baldwin. Uh, because when I first came with the Flyers in 1967, Howard was the ticket manager for the Flyers. So I got to know Howard pretty well. And I always had a lot of respect for Howard for what he's done, you know, with hockey as far as the WHC and the team he was with. So I figured, you know, if I have a chance to play with Bill Deneen and I can reunite with uh, Howard Baldwin in Hartford, that could be a great situation for me. And at the same time, I knew that, you know, Gordy, Mark, and Marty were still in Hartford. So I said it was a win-win situation for me to come to Hartford. And so... I, at that point, there were not too many teams. There were not too many teams left. I, I almost, <laughs> right. you know, by, by every year that I became a free agent, I thought I was making the right decision. I always thought that every team I picked, from the time I picked away the, the Blazers in Philadelphia, I said, good, I'm going to finish my career in Philadelphia. When I went to New York, I said, there has to be a team in New York, otherwise there won't be a league. Then when I went to Houston, to San Diego, 
Then I said, hey, who would want to play in that kind of weather? You know, this right. is the best. When you go to Minnesota, you know you don't have to live there. You go back to San Diego. <laughs> right. And then when I went to Houston, I figured, hey, the oil company, the one championship, this is going to be my last stop. And then when I went to Hartford, I said, well, the insurance company owned the team. Can't be wrong. So right. I always try to choose a team for the right reason, but they still fold it. Except that we're... Right. Then um, I met a lot of good people like you. Yeah, well, you know, thanks. <laughs> yeah. You certainly had a I big... You met a lot of people in Hartford. I mean, you were such a big part of the community as a as a player in your business, uh, coaching, alumni, your charity, uh, just a, a huge part of the community, well-loved. And I think I'll tell you that when I post something online about Chuck Caton and Andre Lacroix and the memories, people come back of that duo uh, you and Chuck had great chemistry and uh, did a great job on the radio and, and brought Whalers hockey to uh, people uh, with uh, 50,000 watts and 1080 WTIC, not only to people in Hartford, but uh, all around uh, the United States. Uh, talk a little bit about working with uh, with Chuck and uh, those days as a Whaler broadcaster. Well, you know, Chuck's the best. I mean, um, I worked with Chuck for what, eight, 10 years and, uh, even when Chuck moved to North Carolina, we talked at one point, we tried to get back together in North Carolina. Because I remember one time my daughter was was living in North Carolina, and every time I went to visit her, I would go see Chuck and would talk. And then uh, at one point, he, Jimmy Rutherford was the manager of the team, and I knew Jimmy. And uh, I went to talk to him because Chuck had asked me, to, you know, if you're interested, go talk to Jimmy, see what happened because I would have loved to move back to North Carolina, to be honest with you, to continue to do the radio with Chuck. And uh, Jimmy just said, we don't have anything in the budget for that. You know, he said, it's not going to happen. But Chuck and I tried because we had such a great combination, the two of us. You know, Chuck was like uh, the good cop. I was a bad cop. <laughs> right. Um, because I was never, I always... I always said it the way it was. If if the Whalers played bad, I said it. If they played well, I said it. Because I knew the people would listen to us, and if they listened to us, I want them to try to visualize what I was telling them. So I didn't want to find excuses. like Because too many people that do games today, they're such homers, you know, it's not even fun listening to them. I agree. So, And that's why Chuck and I got along so well, because... I think I'm surprised I last that long because I thought that the Whalers at some point might say, either you change. And I think that's what happened at the end, by the way, Mark. The reason I didn't do the Whalers at the end on the radio is because some of the players complained that I was too negative on the radio and they decided to go in a different direction. Well, I think that they were, I recall that very vividly, uh, that, uh, you know, obviously we had an ownership change. That changed the entire culture of the organization with the Whalers. I don't think they ever really recovered from that. And they were looking for uh, cheerleaders uh, to be yeah, uh, to be uh, the, the color people. And the thing about yep. you is, yeah, you know, once in a while you, you get under a player's skin. You talk about good cop, bad cop, and that's very accurate because Chuck was able to play it straight and do his thing well. And you were able to point out things that were positive and things that were negative. And that as a listener 
gave you a real good idea of what was happening on the ice. I think I think Chuck uh, Chuck loved the fact that I would disagree with him at times on the air because he had to say it the way it was, and I would come I would bring a different aspect of the game that that it happened. So Chuck liked that because he said that's what the fans they don't want to hear. They want to hear two different views of what happened on the ice. So I, I think that you know th- there were so many good times in Hartford to be honest with you, and. I agree with you completely. I think at the end they were looking for cheerleaders that would come and say, listen, we need to be positive about this. But I asked them, when they decided that I was not going to do the radio again, I remember asking them, I said, could you give me one reason why I shouldn't be doing it? Did you, can you show me one letter that you received that was negative about what I said on the air? Could you tell me one phone call you received about something that did, I said on the air that was wrong? And he couldn't come up with anything. So I said, obviously, you're giving in to some of the players that don't like the fact that they're being not criticized, but tell, make it, telling the mistake they made on the ice. I would not criticize the player for what he did. I would just say, well, if you would have back-checked, for example, you could have stopped him, you know, that kind of thing. I would say, because I knew that a lot of people would turn to watch the game on TV, but turn the sound off and listen to second eye. Right. I want them to see, I want them to make sure that what I was saying is what they saw on TV. So that's why I miss miss Chuck a lot because he and I, you know, we we got along very well during the radio and we we made a a great team together. Absolutely. And you can certainly see by the fans' reaction, even today, all those years later, uh, they really appreciated that, and I know I did as a fan and uh, as an employee, too. It was a lot less fun on game nights uh, when you weren't there, that's for sure. And uh, it was always, <laughs> you're always good for a laugh. You always uh, crack me up and remind me how much better looking my wife was than me. And um, just, uh, <laughs> just, uh, it was always, it was always fun. Um, you know, I saw a recent. I, I saw fine. She's a great lady. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree. The uh, recent you that long has to be great, okay? Excuse me. I said to stay with you that long, she has to be great. She has to be something special. I would agree with that a hundred percent, and uh, I remind myself of that every day. Um, you recently had an appearance with Bernie Perrant, uh, I believe, uh, this, this past weekend. A little, little curious. You've had a long time uh, rapport with Bernie um, as a teammate and as a friend. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your friendship with Bernie Perrant? Well, you know, Bernie and I go back. When I was playing for the Peach in Peterborough, Bernie was playing for Niagara Falls. And then, then we played for the Flyers together. And for some reason, we always, you know, had a, a good relationship the two of us. And then, obviously, I went my own way. And Bernie, had, you know, went his own way as well. But he went to Toronto, then went back to the Flyers. And then we didn't see each other for a long time, to be honest with you. And then I went to the 40-year reunion with the 67 Flyers in, in 2007. And then uh, I saw him then, and we were so happy to see each other. And then this past Saturday, I was in Philadelphia to do a signing with Bernie, and I had not seen him till 2007. It's been 10 years since I've seen him. And then as soon as we saw each other, we, we hugged each other. We were so happy to see each other. We talked to each other in French for a little bit. We talked to each other in English. 
And then Bernie still has his big boat down in New Jersey shore. He said, you need to come and visit me in New Jersey. And he, he, he remarried and he said, uh, he's really, really happy. And we, we couldn't talk enough about, you know, the, the fact that we miss each other. And then after I came home, I text Bernie to tell him that, you know, it was so nice to see him. I hope we stay in touch. And then he texts me back. He says, I love you too. He said, make sure you come and see me down to New Jersey. So, you know, those are the relationships you build over the years. You just don't happen to build them over one year or two years. So even sometimes when you don't see each other, like, like I told you before too, Mark, we don't see each other that much or we don't talk to each other that much. I consider you a good friend. And then, that's what happened when you build relationship over the years that you play hockey. Speaking of, oh, you, you mentioned something when you talked to Bernie. You said you were talking French to each other a little bit. Did I recall, like, back when you were with the Flyers, that I think it was Vic Stasiak who at some point prohibited you, Bernie, Rosie Paymont, Cibon Nole, from speaking French? Uh, that's a very good story. What, and that's a true story. What happened is I was with the Flyers. There were Jean Guichon, Jean Simon Nole. Bernie Perron, Serge Bernier. There were five, six or seven of us that was French. And also, we didn't socialize with each other in Philadelphia. Even when we were on the road, we didn't socialize. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't go out together. And then I think Vic Stasek did not like French Canadians because at one point we, were, we were having a problem winning and he called all the French guys in a room and he said, I don't want you to speak French anywhere on the bus, anywhere. And I said, oh, my gosh. He said that to us on a Wednesday. On the Friday, we were going to Montreal to play the Canadians. On Saturday morning, front page of the newspaper, big picture of Ecstasia, he won't let this player speak French. Well, if it happened today, we would be banned from hockey. Right. Well, <laughs> what, they tried to send out who did that. And then Marcel Pelletier was a scout at the time Came in the uh, came for the pregame skate in the morning. He said, "We'll find out who did this, and he won't be alone." Well, eventually they found out that Bernie's the one that, that told the newspaper about it. Mm-hmm. At the time, Clarence Campbell was president president of the National Hockey League. He called Stasek in. We never called any of us in to find out if he said it or not. But obviously, Stasek denied it, but he did say it, and then everything went, you know, dead. That was it. And that's when Bernie got traded to Toronto after that. Well, well, it is certainly a uh, different world today. And it is. That's, that's often for the, for the better. Um, now, upcoming, you will be returning to the Hartford area. You'll be part of the uh, Whalers event at the uh, uh, Hartford Yard Goats in, uh, in late July. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you as well. Um, it's going to be nice for you to come back, and I know a lot of people are looking forward to seeing you uh, back here. I think the Chuck Caton will be here too as well. I can't wait to see everybody, and, and uh, mostly the fans. I mean, you know, I tell people, I said, the one thing hockey misses today that we've had in the good days is Booster Club. The Booster Club has been so good for hockey for so many years, and then it came to the point where the game got too expensive, the game got too much for the, you know, and thank God the Booster Club in Hartford still exists to promote the Whalers, to be honest with you. And uh, I wish more people would do that. 
Absolutely. They've done a great job for charities as well, and they've hung in there all these years later. And I know they and all of us are looking forward to seeing you. So, uh, But, Andre, again, always a pleasure, my friend. And uh, we uh, look forward to seeing you uh, in a few weeks. Thanks, Mark, and let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Andre. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at prohockeyalumni.org. This episode of the PHA Podcast is sponsored by HockeyTournaments.com. If you're looking to play in a tournament or just list your tournament, head over to HockeyTournaments.com. Thank you for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. If you enjoy listening to the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. This helps make our podcast more visible and accessible to hockey fans around the world. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please contact me at prohockeyalumni.org or via social media at ProHockeyAlumni. The Pro Hockey Alumni greatly appreciates your support.